I wonder, I wonder if you've ever wanted to say to God something like this. No disrespect intended, God. But can I be honest with you? Can I talk to you about what I'm really thinking in an unvarnished way? Can I be honest with you about what I'm experiencing and the questions I have? I think maybe we've all wanted to do that at points. A chauffeur was hired to drive a professor around to deliver the same lecture over and over and over again. And he delivered it some 50 times. And during the course of them driving around together, the chauffeur got to be friendly with the professor. And one time after about the 50th time, he says, you know, Doc, uh, I've heard this thing so many times, I bet I could deliver it word for word on your behalf to the crowd tonight. And the professor was bored with giving the same lecture over and over again. He said, let's do it. Let's change clothes and you deliver it for me. And so the chauffeur, dressed up like the professor, gets up and verbatim bangs out this lecture. And at the end, as there's some applause and that's dying down, a man jumps to his feet to challenge the professor. You know the kind of person, they, they're, they're not being curious, they, they're not being inquisitive, they're trying to show how smart they are, they're trying to embarrass the person by asking the question. And so this guy had a bad attitude as he jumped up, and he wanted to show how smart he was at the professor's expense. And so he shouts out his question, and he stood there with his arms folded and a smirk on his face. Now the chauffeur, everybody could tell what he was trying to do, and the chauffeur could tell as well who was dressed up like the professor. And so he said, you know, to the guy, he goes, you know, I think you, suppose you think you're pretty smart asking a question like that, but the fact of the matter is, it's actually a deeply simplistic question, easily answered. In fact, so easily answered, I'm going to get my chauffeur to come up here on stage and answer it for you. You know, sometimes as believers, we try to give really simplistic answers to complex and sometimes unanswerable questions. Questions that we're never going to have a sense of really getting it this side of heaven. And somehow, I think in the church, we've cultivated the idea that it's sort of spiritual to approach those difficult questions like that. And we all have some difficult questions, don't they? Don't we? Even this week, something happened. And I'm just scratching my head going, why did that happen to my friend? I, ca- I can't understand God. Something happened a couple weeks ago that reminded me of something that happened to me when I was 16 years old. And I've told you this story, but when I was 16, you know, just very briefly, we were going, a bunch of us were going on a trip to Manitoba, and my best friend Dallas and a girl that was almost 15 that I knew really well, and a young mom, as we were traveling together as a bunch, all died in a car accident. And I had some really tough questions that I asked God that night 
and in the days to come. And I've been thinking about the fact that it's very possible that in the last couple of years, as we've gone through what we've gone through, you've had some really tough questions surface in your life. And it could be, I don't know, could be, that as you've gone through these questions, as you've been imposed on you in a sense, you're secretly wondering, could I broach those questions with God? Is that permissible? Am I allowed to do that? Am I somehow being unspiritual or disrespectful if I was to ask God my really honest, heartfelt questions? Or you might be thinking, I'm not even really sure how to do that because I'd want to do it in a respectful way, but I'm not sure how to do it. Is it okay to ask God the really hard questions and how do we, how do, we do that? Well, I want to introduce you to someone who had some really good insights in this. And he's an Old Testament prophet, and he's got a unique name. It's Habakkuk. And in this little series of messages we're going to do together, it's called, You Had Me at Habakkuk. You Had Me at Habakkuk. And we're going to be reading, and if you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. We'll read in just a minute, Habakkuk chapter 1. Now, where's Habakkuk? It's towards, it's past the center of your Bible. He's one of what's called the minor prophets. And so as you start going past Isaiah and Jeremiah, you'll come to Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all little books, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. If you come to Malachi or Zephaniah, you've gone a little too far. Habakkuk chapter one. Before we read that, Let me set the tone, set the background for you so you understand a little bit about what's going on. Habakkuk is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel. There was some political differences earlier in their history, and the 12 tribes plus the tribe of the Levites separated. And so 10 tribes went and formed their own nation called the northern kingdom, and two tribes in the south part of Israel formed their own nation as well. And they both had a king over top of each nation. And the king at this time was Jehoiakim. And it takes place, the the ministry and the activity of Habakkuk takes place just prior to the Babylonian invasion of 605 BC. So there's this historical marker. The northern kingdom had been Um, attacked by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Now we're heading into 605 BC and the Babylonians um, are around at that time. Now normally when you read a prophet, and there's a lot of prophets that are doing stuff, especially in the Old as well as the New Testament, normally what a prophet does is he hears a message from God, he or she hears a message from God, and they share that message with the people. And it can have a a number of different topics, but whatever God lays on that prophet's heart, they share that with the people. In this book, it's quite different. Habakkuk does a little bit of that, but primarily it's Habakkuk, Habakkuk observing what's going on with the people and the circumstances He has deep concerns about it, and he brings his concerns to God. 
So it's quite different than the normal activity of a prophet. And so this is the background of what's going on. The people of God at this time in history, the nation of Israel, are incredibly wicked. They've been turning their backs on God en masse. And despite repeated warnings over many, many years by a variety of different prophets, they just keep doing the same habitual pattern sin over and over again. And things have really degenerated significantly individually and in the nation. And so innocent people are being butchered in the nation. Human sacrifices to false gods are taking place. There are shrine prostitutes that are, um, their idea of worshiping these false gods, they're doing all kinds of repugnant, uh, sinful things. We're gonna read now from the book of Habakkuk, and Greg's gonna read for us chapter one through verse one of chapter two. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me, Their strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so so that justice is perverted. The Lord's answer. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth, to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They come, all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Habakkuk's second complaint. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Is it all right? to ask 
God serious questions about what he's done or not done. Obviously, from this passage, Habakkuk believed it was absolutely appropriate to do things like that. And so there's four distinct sections in the passage of Scripture that we just read. And we're just going to walk through what these things talk to us about relative to those ideas. So part one is found in verses one to four. And in verses one to four, Habakkuk brings his first complaint to God. He's been watching the people, he's been watching the circumstances, and he's really concerned about what's going on in the nation. And so he comes to God with his concern and he says, God, I am concerned about what's going on. There's violence against innocent people. The justice system is corrupt. The government is corrupt. People en masse have turned their backs against you. Evil is rampant in the society. Suffering is rampant. People are being sacrificed to false gods. All kinds of despicable stuff. Now, when you think about our world, and to a certain extent, our own country, do these kinds of ideas and questions that he is asking sound familiar? Well, I absolutely believe that they do. We certainly see these kinds of things going on in our world, and to a certain extent, we see them here in our own country. And so Habakkuk says, listen, God, I'm really confused because based on all I know about you, you are holy. You are pure. You are a God of the covenant. In other words, when you say you're going to do something, you deliver. You never change the terms of reference. You never change the boundaries. You never change the expectations. You are a God of the covenant and you deliver on what you say you're going to do. And so I can't understand, he says to God, why you're allowing all this to go on. I can't understand why you haven't stepped in and just taken care of all this stuff. And God, if you're really there, why don't you just get rid of the evil? God, as far as I know, I have a healthy relationship with you. I have been praying sincere prayers, believing prayers, bold prayers, prayers that are filled with faith. And to be honest with you, God, it's starting to feel to me like it's in vain, like my prayer is falling on deaf ears. He speaks really bluntly with God. And I suspect that when he prayed for God to do something, and I suspect as well, when we pray for God to do something to heal our society, part of his thinking, and I think frequently part of our thinking, is we just want God to take it all away. We just want him to snap his fingers, if he had fingers, he's a spirit, and painlessly remove it. We don't want it to cost us anything. We don't want it to limit us in any way. And we're going to find that God's response in part two is quite different than Habakkuk 
might have expected. And so part two is found in verses five to 11. And God's answer is to not just immediately snap his fingers and take it all away. And and if you think about it, this is one of his good gifts to us. Because if God did that, if he removed our capacity or our option to choose or pursue evil, He's removing completely our freedom to choose. And we would all become pre-programmed robots that had no say in what we really did. And we would just be floating along doing and being compelled to do what we have to do. And God's answer in the next chapter, in the next part of this chapter is to say, I don't want it that way. I don't want a bunch of people who have no freedom to choose, who are compelled to do what I say. I want a relationship with you. I want people who decide to enter into relationship with me based on a free choice, that they will choose to surrender themselves to me, that they will choose to trust me, that they will choose to love me because I love them first. I want a relationship based on respect rather than compelling them. And so he says to them, instead of doing it the way you're suggesting Habakkuk, where you just wipe out evil, I'm going to take the path of judgment. I wish I didn't have to, My patience has been incredible. I'm filled with mercy. I've warned them over and over and over again over the decades. I've sent a variety of different prophets. I've shown them who really is the God, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they won't listen. And so if you won't, God says, accept my invitation to a healthy relationship, if you won't listen to what I have to say, eventually I will have to get your attention through other means. And personally, I get the sense we are building to that in parts of our world and in particular here in North America. That as a people group and as individuals, God is saying, wow, uh, Scott, I just love you and love these people in this nation way too much to just passively sit back and allow a continued downward spiral of pattern sin, of ongoing disobedience, of willful rebellion and eventual destruction. And so I'm going to get your attention. And God says in verses 5 to 11, and it's kind of hard to figure out, but he goes... I will pursue something good using something that's intrinsically bad, the Babylonians. And he describes in verses 5 to 11 what the Babylonians are like. And here's the thing that's deeply confusing to Habakkuk. As wicked as the Israelites have become, and they become deeply wicked as a nation and as people, the Babylonians are even more wicked And in every sense and in every category, they're even more sinful, even more extreme than the Israelites. And yet God says, I am going to use them to judge the nation of Israel. 
so that they will repent, so that they will get right with me, so that their, their path of destruction will cease. Do you suppose that there are some current or future parallels for us here in Canada? Maybe as a nation or maybe me as an individual will be reprimanded by others who are farther from the God of the Bible than we are. And maybe that's happening or is about to happen. It won't surprise me at all. And so really the big question is, God, what's, mess, what, what's your message for me? Are you trying to tell me something? Am I missing what you would have me hear? Have I just gotten really comfortable in a comfortable place, just kind of floating along, going with the flow, not sticking out in any way, and being entirely comfortable allowing a society that is increasingly moving away from God to just carry me along. God, do you have a very personal message for me that I'm not hearing? That obviously the Israelites wouldn't hear, and I don't want to fall in the same pattern. Part three is verses 12 to 17. And in this we see Habakkuk's second complaint after he hears God's answer to his first complaint. And he says stuff like this. He goes, I'm confused. I don't get it, God. And the parts that I do understand, to be honest with you, I don't like at all. God, why would you use those, which, those people which are more wicked than the Israelites to judge the more, relatively speaking, righteous ones? I don't understand, and the part I do understand, I don't like at all. And God, that doesn't seem fair to me, that you would judge your chosen people in this way. Now, if you're here, and let's just think in especially these last couple of years, if you've been going through some difficult things, let me just say, first of all, that may not have anything directly to do with you. That's entirely possible. But one of the reasons you might be going through difficult things where God might even be judging you, one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons might be God's saying, I need to get your attention. There's a pattern of unrepentant, sinful behavior and activity in your life. You're not getting the message and it's going to erode you, it's damaging your relationship with God and with people and with yourself, and I love you too much to carry on that way. And he may use someone more wicked, relatively speaking, than me to do it. This is, again, because he loves me too much to continue to let me go down the tubes with ongoing sin. So is here in this passage, in this part of it, in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, Habakkuk is questioning the fairness of God. Are you fair? Is it right for you to use people who are more wicked 
than Israel to punish Israel's sin. And you know, there are times in our experience where people, perhaps such as yourself, who have a sincere, healthy relationship with God, and you're a thinking person, which is a good thing to do, will at times have questions about God and what he does and doesn't do. And they will be of a serious nature. And never for a moment do I want you to think that having a relationship with God means you won't or can't have questions. That you can't think. There's never that expectation in Scripture. That there are difficult things we face. There are even unexplainable things, to be honest with you, that we will never totally get our head around until we're in heaven. And as I said earlier, and I'm going to say again, I think the church has been guilty of sort of cultivating this false idea that to really be spiritual, you have to act like it doesn't hurt or that you don't have questions. And so some individual believers operate under this premise. Oh, I could never really be honest with God. I just need to put on a happy face and pretend like I get it and pretend like it doesn't hurt. This is not found in Scripture, that approach. In the Scriptures, we are invited to be honest with God and forthright. Now, having said all that, I want you to notice with me some of the things that Habakkuk does to bring his questions to God. He has a definite pattern that he invites us to follow. And the first one is this, he goes directly to God. This is so very different than the way we often do it. He doesn't go to other people with his deals. He goes right to the source and he says to God, God, um, this is what I see this is what I perceive. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I seem to observe, this pattern, and, and I don't understand. The, the other options we often per, pursue, I would suggest there's at least three other options rather than the one advocated by Habakkuk. The other three is um, we complain to others. That's the first one. We complain to others about God. And we say, I don't understand why God's doing this. And we complain to other people rather than to him. Or more often, we complain to other people about a situation or about God's leader. And leaders screw up, absolutely. But sometimes they haven't screwed up. We're just mad at God or we don't understand what God is doing. And so we complain about a situation or about a leader in a roundabout way of complaining about God. And this is often the approach we take. The second one, and we are seeing this increasingly in the church all across North America and around the world, is the second approach is often to just turn away from God. And in the last couple of years, there has been a massive turning away from God, a high percentage. The third one, and this is another one that we're seeing in significant numbers in the last couple of years is people just isolating themselves. I have these questions. I don't understand what's going on, particularly in these last couple of years. And so I can't get my head around this. And so I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to set scripture aside. I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to stop being in community with people. 
And I would argue that these latter three options are all forms of denial. Living in denial. I don't want to deal with the real issues. I'm afraid to. I'm, you know, don't want to be bothered. I've been looking for a reason to hit eject anyway. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, I would argue that this kind of approach is like hydroplaning over authenticity. I'm afraid to really face this. And so Habakkuk says, don't do any of those things. Go right to the source. And here's the cool thing that I notice about verses 5 to 11, that part 2, is when he asks these difficult, really in-your-face questions to God, God never gets after him. God welcomes the questions. He welcomes our questions. And when God gives his response to Habakkuk, he doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for doing this by asking these questions. He doesn't say, how dare you, Habakkuk? He doesn't say, you know, Habakkuk, you're supposed to be one of the leaders around here. You're supposed to be my representative. How dare you say or ask questions like this to me? God doesn't do that. And so I would suggest to you, if you're going through difficult things, if you're wrestling with unanswerable questions, that it's incredibly healthy to go to God and express honestly to him what's going on. And again, here's the little secret. We labor under the illusion that he doesn't know about it. He knows about it. He knows your thoughts. He knows exactly what you're thinking. And he's just longing for you to be honest enough with yourself to be honest with him. And he invites you to do that because it's in that place that he can begin to work in our life. When we live in denial, when we run away because we're afraid, not much he can do with that. Because again, he wants to work with willing people. He doesn't want to compel this stuff. Notice as well the second thing that Habakkuk does. He, he's been at this for quite a while. It says, in, what does it say in verse 2? How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you tolerate wrong? How long, God? He doesn't just pray about this stuff once, and, not, and when he doesn't get an instant answer, He's off to the next thing. He doesn't just throw up his hands and walk away after he's prayed about something once. It says, and we don't know how long, but obviously he has been at this for quite a while. And remember, he is a godly man. He's a godly man who understands God, for the most part at least, as much as God can be understood. He understands God's attributes. He understands God's character. You see evidence of this if you're reading through the text. And he is praying, believing, bold, faith-filled prayers. These are not shallow prayers. These are not superficial prayers. They're authentic prayers. 
and he's been doing it for a while, and he's, he, he's going, I don't get it, God. You are holy, God. You are pure, God, and yet you're using the Babylonians. Aren't you tolerating the treacherous? Aren't you kind of tag-teaming the holy with the wicked? In some sense, it seems like you're using them as your agents. I don't understand. And so he processes through in part three, verses 12 to 17, his second complaint. And here's the third thing that's really key. He goes right to God. He doesn't just do it once. He, he's persistent. He prays holy, authentic prayers. The third thing he does comes up in section four, the last section, which is one verse in chapter two. And here's what I'd like to do as we go to this fourth section. I'm going to ask everybody that's able, physically able, to stand up. Whether If you're at home watching, stand up on the couch, off the couch or whatever. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you to stand up with me for the next few minutes. And here's why. You'll understand in a second. Verse 1 says this. This is the third thing Habakkuk does. I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And so he gives us this very powerful image that I want you to bear in mind as you're standing there of standing on guard. In fact, you could almost stand at attention a little bit. Because in that day, if you... and, and I think as well today as well, if you, if you fell down on your job of standing guard wherever your assigned post was, if you were on the wall and you're supposed to look at this section here, or if there's an encampment and you're supposed to be guarding so that the people behind you who are tired can sleep and know that they are confident that you're not falling asleep on the job, if you're doing your job right, you are preventing them from being enslaved or slaughtered which is what happened back then. If you fell asleep at your post in those days, you would be severely punished and sometimes even executed if you fell asleep on the job. And so this is why I say what Habakkuk is saying, waiting has absolutely nothing to do with being passive. I introduced this thought a couple of weeks ago. I pick up on it again. Waiting has nothing to do with being passive. The image Habakkuk gives us is, as I wait for God's answer, I'm alert. My head is on a swivel. I'm anticipating what might come out of the darkness because I'm on guard. I will challenge anything that comes out of the darkness because it's my role to protect these people behind me and my head is on a swivel. I am poised, I am disciplined, I'm ready to meet the challenge. And he is saying, I'm going to wait for as long as it takes in this posture until God tells me the time is right. I've had my say, he's listened to me, I've treated him respectfully, and now I'm going to wait for God to answer. And friends, this is so important to have that attitude. I have questions. I have tough questions. But I would like to hear from God. And so I'm going to wait with an expectant heart. Here's the idea. He, had an expect, he, he was expectant without an agenda. 
He was expectant without an agenda. He's refusing to demand my way or else. He's prepared to pay, and this is a high cost. The high cost of surrender to God's way as he waits. He, he, he believes that God will give him his answer in his time. And, and it's an answer that he may, and quite frankly, may not even under, totally understand this side of heaven. And it's in this frame of mind, with this heart posture, that God will ultimately satisfy and bring you peace. Circumstance might not change, but you will have a sense of satisfaction and a sense of peace. Can I be honest with God? I believe you can. We're going to sing.